Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the phrase gun culture means different things to different people. Gun enthusiasts herald and defend their constitutional right to own and use firearms. On the other hand, many gun control advocates view gun culture in the United States as a national shame, one that makes us world leaders in gun ownership and violence. The polarization between these two camps is well chronicled, and former firearms executive Ryan Bussey finds himself smack in the middle. He calls himself, quote, a proud outdoorsman, gun owner, father, and resident of Montana. If there is a reasonable, sustainable middle ground between gun rights and gun control, Bussey may know better than most where to plant that flag. His new book is Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Brian Bussey grew up in a family that valued guns as useful tools. He has fond memories of learning about them from his father and has passed that tradition down to his children. He grew up in a time when the National Rifle Association stood for and promoted responsible gun ownership and ethics. But he saw that stance and the relationship between the NRA and the gun industry change over the years toward a culture of conspiracy theories and fear-mongering. At a crucial interlude, the man nominated many times for the Shooting Industry Person of the Year Award could no longer support the path he saw that industry taking. Guns are used for recreation, hunting, target practice, and competitions, and self-defense in the U.S. Recent studies show that the subculture of recreational use is falling, while that of self-defense is on the rise. Amid those trends, people are being killed in staggering numbers. There were 14,400 gun-related homicides in 2019. Killings involving a gun accounted for nearly three-quarters of all homicides in the U.S. in that year. Ryan Bussey spoke recently with KUOW's Bill Radke about his book and the changes he wants to see in America's gun culture. Town Hall Seattle presented their talk on November 1st as part of their Civic series. We'll start here with Bussey reading a passage from Gunfight. You are an evil little bastard. Spit flies as the middle-aged man screams at my younger son, Badge. You know that? The man wears an American flag shirt, American flag on his shirt, and a pistol on his belt. He is enraged, the color in his face rising to match that of his Make America Great Again hat. Then the stranger pushes his finger into my son's chest. Badge is a slightly built boy of 12, with blonde hair and bright eyes, and he is terrified. But he straightens his back, and he looks at the man, and he simply says, I can't breathe, joining the protesting crowd, chanting those three words in unison over and over. I snap into defensive mode and force myself between them. If you say another word to my son or even think about touching him one more time, it'll be months before you're able to stand again. I snarl at the man, yelling at him through the crowd noise. He looks up at me and eases off. You with this kid, Maga Man barks. All I can do now is shake his head before sneering at me. 
then you're an evil fucker too. This man and dozens like him had showed up with their guns to frighten people like Badge and me. I knew they called themselves Second Amendment patriots. And as I glare at the angry man, he storms off, presumably to find someone else to intimidate. I turn to Badge. You okay? He shakes with tears in his eyes, but he brushes it off and keeps chanting with everyone else. Of course he's okay. He gets that kind of courage from my wife, Sarah. Lost in the crowd, she hasn't even seen, seen the brief confrontation. There will be a lot of guns and people could get killed. Sarah had warned our boys a few hours earlier after reading the emailed alerts that had been issued by protest organizers. We need to have an escape plan if shooting starts. Then she tightened her face and draped her long arms over their shoulders. She looked at both of them the way good moms do when they're trying to balance fear with courage. If you hear shots, you run for safety any way you can. Just get to the grocery store. We'll rendezvous there. Got it? I watched Sarah as she reassured the boys about how important it was for us to be physically present as the tension of an entire nation spilled into the streets at Black Lives Matter rallies, even in Kalispell, Montana, where we live. Sarah and I both knew how important it was to go, even despite the promise of armed counter-protesters wearing camo and waving flags and Trump 2020 signs. Sarah then pulled Badge and Lander, our 15-year-old, in tight for a hug. I bet they'll have Confederate flags, Lander said on our drive to the protest. What kind of idiots idolize losers? After a moment, he asked, Dad, are these the same people who keep coming after you at your job? Yeah, I said, wishing my answer could have been different. Do you think they'll have any Kimbers, Badge asked, referring to the major U.S. gun company whose sales office is headquartered in Kalispell? Because that'd be weird. I'm not sure what we'll see, buddy, I replied. But they'll all have AR-15s and tactical gear. They're going to look scary and dangerous. That's because they want to frighten you. Don't let them, Sarah, finish my thought. This isn't about them. It's not about us. It's about standing up with people of color. Then she shot a glance at me. We're not going to let guns be a distraction. That's when I realized I was probably the most frightened among the four of us. I was intimately familiar with the people and weapons that would confront us, and I knew what those guns were capable of. That's because I was, even then, an executive at one of the, top, at one of the, top, the country's top gun manufacturers. I am responsible for selling millions of guns. Ryan Bussey, thanks for coming here to Seattle. Thank you, Bill. Did you come from Montana? I here? did. Um, we needed just a bit of culture, so we came two and a half days early and have been enjoying Seattle. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, my gun experience stops with uh, BB guns and soda pop cans uh, when I was a kid. I'm curious about other people. I mean, that's a, what you might expect in Seattle is that we don't have a lot of uh, uh, gun experience, but has anyone here shot a gun, owned a gun, hunted? There you go. Well, then maybe you should tell us, why do, you, why do you love guns? Or at least, why did you love guns when you were a kid and do you still? But tell us about your feeling about this. So I think um, a fair amount of the first part of the book is about this exact emotion. And, um, you know, the through line of the book is about how guns have been used to radicalize so much of the country, which is something that's very sad to you know, makes me very sad. But um, I grew up and guns represented so many of the things that were, you know, the most formative, wholesome, best parts of my life. They weren't, um, 
they weren't like so many other parts of the country or to to people in other parts of um, you know flyover country or large cities or whatever. They they didn't. You're represent, from a corner of Kansas. Yeah, I was from a very rural northwestern corner of Kansas on a large ranch, and I I like to say I grew up with a shotgun in one hand and a rifle in the other, and. Um, Guns represented to me things that I wanted to be true, things that I wished to be true, things that I hoped to be true, hunting with my father, shooting with my brother. They become a part of our cultural identity. And so for so many people who struggle to understand the connection to guns and how it is that they have been so central to so many of so, so much of the ugliness, the cultural ugliness that we have seen across our country in the last four to five years, I will say it's actually directly linked to how central to culture that they are. Because once someone like me identifies that guns are a, are a representative part of their culture, they're that you know I, I joke that guns are a tool, right? They're a a piece of steel and metal and maybe some wood and some screws and some maybe some plastic they're not really unlike a hammer or an axe or a you know a shovel but nobody the night before they're going to work on their deck or do landscaping gets their shovel or their hammer out and says oh gosh i can't wait to use this in the morning nobody does that mm. but almost all hunters do these sorts of things because they're representative of a culture something that's wholesome to us and so that's the way it was for me as a kid, um, using shotguns with my father, or having my dad be proud of me when I shot beer cans off of a fence with a pistol. Um, and so as people across the country struggle to understand our connection to guns, I'll just say that to so many folks, they're very central to something that's very American, very wholesome. Um, and when that sort of cultural connection happens, then it can be twisted in very, very nefarious ways. You've said wholesome a couple of times. What do you mean wholesome? I think that, um, you know, hunting is a, like an iconic part of our American culture. Um, it is for me. I still, still, I, I hunted with my boys just last week and the week before. Hopefully I'll do it again soon. Um, for us, gathering food, shooting, and, and, and guns are a part of this. They, they, they aren't central to our identity but they are something that we use. They're a tool that we use. And as forces, political forces in our country convince us, convince us that these are under attack, people like me become ever more protective of these things. And so they become, you know, I, I think that in the last five to six years, a lot of folks in this country have struggled to understand what's happened to the country. How did, how did we become so divided? And it's these, these symbols that part of the country believes are iconic, almost like they're stripped off in a, a Campbell's soup can. Uh, um, they came out of a Life magazine. They, you know, they, like they're, they're, they're part, they're, they're, nothing could be more American than, than a dad and his son with a shotgun striding out across the prairie, you know, chasing their bird dog and trying to shoot a pheasant, right? That, that's very much the sort of culture that I was raised in, and I still hold that very dear. Um, I hear that in your voice. Yeah. But it, but it can be, but it can be twisted. Um, when you have, when you have a culture that becomes part of your identity like that, and then a force, an entity, a political organization convinces you that that there's somebody trying to take it away, 
that's that's where the movie starts. <laughs> you know, mm. that's where the ugly starts. Well, and that that's the beauty of this book, which I really, really enjoyed, Gunfight, Ryan. Um, is that I mean, we'll we'll talk because I want our listeners to understand what they can about the NRA and and uh, the radicalization, as you call it, of America. But you can't quite bring across what you can't. As you, what we got a glimpse in, in what you read. It's the it's the TikTok. It's you being in the middle of this from from you know from young hunter to eventually gun executive and all the stuff you went through and the change in you. Sometimes the reluctant change in you. Yeah. That's you know that's the beauty of the book. Um, but but let's talk. So let's talk about how how young hunting Ryan ends up. Um, a gun executive did that seem so eventually you needed a job did, did that seem like a like a natural fit like oh i love guns so gun selling is a natural or was how did that happen it really it really did i don't know that natural is quite right it almost seemed dreamlike to be honest with you um in much the same way that playing baseball for a kid and making the big leagues seems unnatural. It, it, I didn't anticipate that I would be so lucky as to be in an industry where I would get to partake and facilitate the sort of things that, um, you know, that were so central to my childhood dreams. And so, yeah, I graduated, I, you know, I grew up, I graduated from college. I thought, what should I do? And I, you know, so I, I really hit it big when I, and I, I, my first job was a whopping $6 an hour at, um, at a optics manufacturer. But I, I really did. I thought like, okay, well, this is the minor leagues, but you know, pretty soon I'll throw a no hitter, no hitter here and I'll make it in the big leagues. Um, and uh, eventually I did, I don't know if I threw a new hit, no hitter, but I made it in the big leagues and then I graduated to a firearms company for a whopping $32,000 an hour, uh, $32,000 a year. And, um, but I just, I got to be around the people and the things and the culture that I had grown up with as a kid. And it was, it was in very, in very many ways dreamlike to me. Um, you know, I, I joked many times that I got paid to hunt and fish, you know, kids that golf, maybe they, uh, dream of working for a golf company or kids that play baseball, you know working for a baseball company or a baseball team and and here I was working for a gun company and it was it was you know like a piece of the american dream for me it was a magic why were you so good at it um <laughs> i'm bulldogged um so there's lots of traits about me that um that come through in the book i think that are both important to me as a character they're both <laughs> their character flaws and their character attributes. Like so much, so much of our personal nature, um, probably like what is good or strong about me is also my flaw. And I was bulldogged. I didn't take no for an answer. I sold products when nobody else could sell them. I worked hard. I worked almost. 18 hours a day for a long time. I wanted to build a company. I didn't know any different. I had grown up on a wheat farm and cattle ranch where hard work was just the way way of the world. And so, frankly, working these desk jobs and 
making calls and working long hours was a lot easier than cleaning out grain bins or building barbed wire fence. So it didn't seem it didn't seem incredibly difficult to me, but I, w I was pretty dogged about it. We should talk about Kimber. This is there's something special. I mean, as in your telling of it, there's something special about Kimber. I was very proud of Kimber. Kimber is a Pacific Northwest company. We're sitting here in Seattle today. It was Kimber was founded in um, Portland, uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon, um, and it's a very iconic, high-end company that builds very fine firearms. And I was, um, it was a fledgling company company when I started, but it, but it, um, but we built guns that were collector's items that were passed down generation to generation that you could be proud of. Um, and the owner of the company never wanted to build, at that time it was an Australian guy who... What a piece of work, this we, guy. Yeah, we find, it, we find in the book that there, he's, he's a very colorful character and um, <laughs> he, yes, as he once said, he, he, he liked the palace of the interpretive dance, which is what he called the strip clubs in Portland. Um, he, <laughs> he loved to have a good time, but he loved good guns. He was an artist. And um, he, he never wanted to build guns that would be found in crime scenes. And I, for as questionable as he was in all of his other character, he had this sort of artist through line in him. And I identified with that. And those are the sorts of guns that I thought I could be proud of and that I could maybe tell my father about or tell my grandfather about or maybe pass down to my son. These sort of, this sort of American iconography that comes up through the firearms business. I thought I was living in that. And for, for a long time, I, th I think I was. Well, that Australian dude was a piece of work. But, and that's part of your, uh, part of your book is just the meeting character after character. Yeah. But after a while, it's not, it's not so funny and it's not just... Uh, it's not just strip clubs. There, so let's start with this. I, I forget, is it David? Yeah. Right? The, 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 the Daryl Stewart? Daryl. Yeah. What, did you think that any of his rot or whatever you want to call it had anything to do with guns? No. Or was that a coincidence? No. Um, I don't, I think that guns were a, I, don't, I, don't, I, I think that so much, you know, I lived in, a, in an industry that is representative of America and a representative of the trajectory of American politics and American culture, and I just lived it 10 or 15 years before the rest of America did. I think that the NRA realized in all of us this thing that brought us together, these characters, these Daryl and Dwight and, and, all, and Leslie and all the people that I work with. The guy with. who takes mm -hmm. the shot, the center of yeah, mass that's Darryl, guy? Yeah, Holy. that's Daryl. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, and, and this is a funny story, right? I... Um, <laughs> the book is, some of it is hard, some of it is gut-wrenching, some of it is darkly funny, and, the, and this particular part I think that Bill is referencing is a darkly funny part. I, had, I was forced to hire a gentleman named Daryl Stewart, and, and when he showed up, I said, you know, I, I wanted to interview him, and I wanted him to be this, I wanted to build a team that was you know, part of a company that I thought that, that, that gun companies should be, but Daryl wasn't this, and, and I was forced to hire him because the owner of the company had shut down another wing and said, you're hiring him, and I don't really care what you think. And so when Daryl showed up, I said, what do you know about guns, Daryl? Because I'm kind of going to do a faux interview here, right? Thing. Mm -hmm. And he goes, 
I said, what do you know about 9 millimeters versus 45s? And he goes, well, I know 9 millimeters hurt. I said, really? He goes, yeah. When I was, uh, you know, working at the mall with my partner, he and I both took a shot to the chest. I let him shoot me, and then I got to shoot him back. And the story's longer than that in the book. But yeah. this is the sort of crazy sort of gun. As crazy as you think the inside of the gun industry was, it was crazier. Well, that's why I bring it up because I will now I will cop to my Seattle blue state don't own a gun never hunted anything in my life you know I I don't know I'm an idiot right about this stuff but so through my lens the yahoos that you were surrounded with I felt like well that's either the kind of people either guns do something to them or they're the kind of people who would want to be around guns but you know I didn't know if I was misreading that, if I was being one of those West Coast elitists. No, I think that my point in that chapter was that I often ran into people for the trajectory of my career who were very curious about what I did. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I feel like I had an outsized influence on American politics and our history. And I feel like my industry had a very outsized influence on American politics. And so many people think that it was these button-down service academy, very well-trained, disciplined people. No, it wasn't. It was people like Daryl Stewart who were volunteering to get shot with a bulletproof vest on out behind a mall in Reno. You know, and, and we were just, everybody in the industry was just enamored with guns. We just wanted to work with guns. And I, and I tell the story in the book that... Everybody who I ever interviewed, I always ask them a question. What would you like out of a job? And it's like, essentially it was anything I can do to work in the gun industry. There was just an, an almost preternatural sort of attraction to working with guns. And I had that too because of my cultural upbringing. But as I went along in the industry, I realized, wait a second. This is so sort of gravitational that we can be we can be molded into something that's not really very, very healthy. I guess the reason I'm, why I'm asking is that, uh, and there's a lot of unsafe workplaces, but you just tell story after story of, you know, the guy shooting his dog and, you know, yep. out in the field and, yep. you know, receptionists fearing for their lives. And, yep. and so I, I'm just, I'm thinking, am I looking at this through bias or is there, because um, when, when I hear, you know, gun lover, we sometimes you'll hear gun nut out here. You know, I just think I, I like shooting BB guns, but it was just a BB gun. I don't understand the kind of wild-eyed, uh, you know, this is, this is my, in my yeah. mind, uh, yeah. Ryan. It's like I have, a, I have a caricature in mind of someone who loves guns a little too much. You yeah. know what I mean? So uh, just what do you think is going on with that? So I think there was a time I lived in the transition between Loving guns a little too much, which maybe I did as, a, did as a kid. I don't know, but there wasn't. But what was so bad that could happen from it? I'm a rural kid on a ranch. I go hunting one more day. Like, that, that's about the worst that could happen. I tell the story in the book of my brother and I. You know, he watches an A-Team episode, and he happens to put a hole in the wall of, the, of our farmhouse. That's, that's about as bad as it could get. Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't. There were no mass shootings. There were no school shootings. There was no Columbine. There was no Parkland. There was no Las Vegas, Sutherland Springs, Sandy Hook. There, were, there was none of this stuff. And somehow it went from that, which was maybe 
you know, in our mind, there was some, there, there were, it was American and wholesome and it, it was healthy and it was part of our childhood. And then I lived through this transition when Daryl was trying to shoot his dog in the parking lot and we forgave that. And, you know, he told me a story about taking nine millimeters to a bulletproof vest and we forgave that. And the NRA realized that it could take all of this cultural, you know, connection and twist it. And we forgave that. And then we woke up and the NRA is what it is today. And I guess my book is the, the transition in our culture, my story and America's story between a couple of kids, my, my brother and I shooting on a prairie ranch in Western Kansas to where we are today, where we where were told we need to forgive people who stormed the Michigan Capitol with loaded AR-15s and 30-round magazines and threatened to kill a governor, and we're supposed to forgive that. Yeah. And I don't think we need to forgive that. Well, let's, let's get into that. So th this, is, this is the core of the book. Um, what's the subtitle? My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. So yeah. will you, and this has to be compressed, it's not like reading the book, but will you give us that sense of, of the, the radicalization as you experienced it from the inside? Yeah, it's very much, so it's told through my eyes, through my story, but I think that my story is very much is is very similar is very is the through line for America's story where an a political entity realizes that there's something wholesome twist it and then uses it to to change American politics and I would have never dreamed of you know my my grandfather was a proud FDR democrat who had his favorite hat that he wore to my ball games as a kid in western Kansas was a black NRA cap with the big gold NRA letters. He would have never dreamed of an NRA that we have today. My father was an NRA member who got magazines right up until the early 1990s at our house. They never contained you know, impending stories about the doom of the Republic and, and God only knows what else now. Would you maybe maybe you should explain to us what the NRA is because it sounds like it's a it's a it's a shooting club or it's about uh, or it's a political organization or it's about maximizing industry profits. It's it's so it's all of the above and it, it um, the NRA actually has two legal wings, a five hundred one c three and a five hundred one c four. A five hundred one c three is the nonprofit wing, which what forever was the preeminent side of the of the NRA, which is they taught shooting safety, they put on shooting schools, they host, hosted skeet tournaments, they did the things that, that my grandfather thought were very commendable. The 501c4 is the political side of the, of the NRA, and that's what we all think of the NRA now today, which is a, the, maybe the most powerful political organization that the United States has ever seen. And I lived in the transition between those two sides of the NRA and it's become, in my opinion, you know, one of the most dangerous and divisive tools, entities, forces that this country has ever seen. 
and it has become that way because it can take it could take this wholesome memory, these things that are so dear to so many people in red flyover states and rural areas, and even in suburban areas in places like Seattle. There's there's lots of there are a lot of NRA members in suburban Seattle. Um, they can take these sort of cultural connections and twist them into something that's very very dangerous, and that and that and that's where we are today. Well, one one of our questioners asks. Was there a specific moment or event that made you want to leave the firearm industry? When you made that decision, did you feel any guilt from your coworkers or any other parties? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I still feel guilt for staying in too long, although I, I believe that I was, you know, the, the book is about me fighting against it for, more, for almost 20 years. But I point to one particular instance. The... 2017 SHOT Show, which is, the SHOT Show is the large industry trade show. It's the one of the largest trade shows in the, in the world, and it's typically held in Las Vegas. And the 2017 SHOT Show happened to be held on Inauguration Day 2017, just after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. And on that, in that SHOT Show, um, something I'd never seen happened. These huge booths, which are bigger than the space we're sitting in here tonight, all these companies, including mine, had these monstrous booths, many hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, they, they, they're buildings, they're not booths, but everyone had multiple flat screen TVs tuned to the same place. And I noticed at about 9.30 in the morning, I think that's about the time, Las Vegas time, when what would become, to known, as, become known as the American Carnage speech, which was Trump's inauguration speech, was gonna happen. And it was piped in through the, the whole SHOT Show came to a standstill like a Catholic mass. All, and it was, all of the flat screen TVs were tuned to the same network television. And tens of thousands of people who normally move with a kind of frenetic pace just stopped in their tracks. And I thought, you know, my God, what have we done? That didn't happen at shows like that. That never happened. Like, I, you know, to assume that every single person in this humongous entity had the same sort of political outlook and wanted to cheer this, what, you know, come on. It didn't take a genius to understand that we had just elected somebody that was potentially very, very dangerous to our democracy. Um, and I looked around and thought, you know, I mean, there are people from Spain and Germany. Why, why, why are we inflicting this on them? Not to mention me, um, who didn't agree with this. And it was just this sort of cultish environment. It was, you know, the book... The through line of the book, again, is this sort of, that I, I, the belief that I lived as a, in this thing that was a precursor to what our modern politics were. That was 2017, just at the beginning of the Trump presidency, and how, come on, we've all lived through this thought that, how, how could an entire entity of people look at this, pause, silent, standing still with reverence, and not think something's wrong? I mean... And I lived that on that inauguration day at a trade show, at a firearms trade show in, in January of 2017. And, and that was really the day where I, I tell the story. I, I come home. I lived in Montana at the time. All of our flights, <laughs> we'd, you know, it's not Seattle. We don't have direct flights everywhere. So all of our flights got home at midnight. I got home at midnight. I drive home. It's almost 1 o'clock. I try to slip into bed. Sarah asked, how was it? I said, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And, and that was really a, a breaking point for me.
And there was all that time leading up where you're the frog in the, in the slowly boiling water. Yeah. So we were starting to talk about this as we had a drink uh, earlier. How do, you, how, how do you figure that happen, that radicalization? That, well, I'll just let you handle it. How, how, how did that happen and how did the gun industry um, get so tied up with, it, with this cultural radicalization? So I think that the NRA and we were chatting about this, I think the NRA accidentally stumbled onto so many of these things and then very, very powerful political forces in the country were smart enough to recognize to use them. So it wasn't a masterminding of, of conspiratorial geniuses decades ago. It, <laughs> no, I don't think there was a lot of genius. Um, they became evil geniuses but not in the way that so many people portray them. And I think it's important for people to understand this because as we think about undoing so much of this cultural division and this, this stuff that is tearing families apart, the stuff that is tearing workplaces apart, I mean, we all have stories about losing friends and family members and we can't go to Thanksgiving dinner and it, it's just horrendous. And we, we seem to think that it's been you know, laid over the top of us by these mastermind genius people, but that's really not the way it happened. As I saw it, you know, as an example, one of the main components of, of this sort of cultural division that we've seen over the last few years is this belief in and, and drive from conspiracy theory because it drives fear, this sort of basal level human fear. And I saw Wayne LaPierre jump up on stages and almost like I'm oversimplifying a bit, but I'm telling you, I'm not oversimplifying much. And it was almost like he would whisper backstage, like, what do you want me to say? Like, okay, okay. Um, Barack Obama is going to rewrite the Constitution. And then people cheered. Him. <laughs> yeah, and, they, and, it, and be like, okay, okay, they, they bought that one. What, what next? Oh, like, He's going to outlaw hunting ammunition. They got that one too. And, and it was almost like he, he, he almost said, my God. They're going to buy this conspiracy theory. And so it went on and on and on. And so I tell, you know, stories in the book about these multiple crazy NRA conspiracy theories, which are obviously sound asinine today. But people cheered. Very smart people, executives that I knew, bought into them. They funded them. And so when QAnon came along and Hillary Clinton supposedly had sex slaves in a pizza parlor or Democrats drank the blood of Democrat you know, of small children. I'm like, eh, really not a shocker to me. No. I've seen this. I've seen guys jump up on stage, kind of put their finger in the air and it seemed to work. But what I want people to know is this wasn't like a long drawn out plan. It was just sort of a, a basal appeal to the sort of worst parts of our human nature, fear, conspiracy, that happened, then I saw forgiving of very, you know, bad racial undertones happen. I, I tell stories in the book about t-shirts that were forgiven or cheered or high-fived or, you know, very, and so you, you overlay conspiracy with fear, with racial undertones, with hatred of the other, and bam, you have today's modern politics. Yeah. But did it, did it start, is it fair to say it started out with, was it about gun regulations? Like, um, 
uh, oh, background checks or, or the, the assault weapons ban, you know, the, w w this is going to, this is the slippery slope, they're, they're going to come and grab your guns? Was that how it started? I think that, as with all good conspiracy theories, there's just a tiny seed of truth in everything. And so the Democrats became the party of, air quotes here, gun control. And then that was just put on steroids. Um, and the NRA, you know, it went from, we're trying to regulate what high capacity is, 10 rounds or 11 rounds or 12 rounds or eight rounds to, it wasn't a big step to go, they're going to take all of your guns. And that sort of hyperbolic conspiracy theory, which we see now today, um, that really has its roots in the NRA. And I think there's, a, there's just the tiniest bit of truth of that one side wants to be more regulatory and the other side wants to be less regulatory. And then you can just, you can just plug that into the, to the electric grid and it just takes off. But was that just about getting people to buy guns? Like, well, if they think their guns are gonna get taken away, they're gonna buy more now, sales will go up. How much was it that versus, oh, fear is the way we're going to divide the culture and radicalize America. So the, the political side came first. And so there, there's a common mispercep misperception and I've heard it reported on NPR and my family listens to NPR every morning we have for, <laughs> I don't know how many years, and every time that I hear this, you know, that the NRA is just an extension of the firearms industry. It is exactly opposite of that. The firearms industry takes its orders from the NRA. And so every time that I hear whatever NPR reporter, I don't think you, Bill, but um, that has reported this, I, I'm like jumping at the radio and screaming and, you know, um, spilling the, no, we don't drink mimosas, but, um, mm -hmm. but spilling the orange juice and spilling the coffee, trying to reach to the radio and screaming at it. It's, it's not, the NRA has, it, it set the pace with these very divisive politics, and it just so happened that the very same things that drove NRA voters and NRA politics and these divisive right-wing politics, the, the firearms industry said, holy smokes, these are the same things that sell guns. Fear, conspiracy, hatred, racism, distrust of the other, right? Is it any accident that when I got into the industry, there were about three million, three and a half million, maybe four million guns sold a year. That sounds like a lot. If you think back in all of our existence, to the most tumultuous time of our existence in the last 20 years. What, what was it? It's the last 18 months, right? COVID, George Floyd was murdered. Massive riots across the country. Armed people counter-protesting those riots. January 6th, people trying to kidnap governors. People invading, armed people invading Kentucky capital, Michigan capital, Virginia capital. Like, I couldn't even conceptualize of this sort of tumultuous existence where we where we really fear for the basic nature of our of our democracy. Where do you think the highest gun sales were? Of course, it was in the last 12 months. So again, I'm going to just for reference: three million guns sold when I got in the three and a half million guns sold when I got in the business. In the last 12 months, 24 million. Guns sold. And in the book, you keep charting the ups and downs. Yeah. 
uh, you, know, you can see it happen. Every time a Democrat... So the two things drive gun sales big time. Fear generated from the election, a Democratic election, and, that, and that's usually irrational fear driven by um, the NRA hyperbole, or national tragedy. 9-11 drove sales. And then, so usually gun sales go uh, up in a Republican, or up in a Democratic administration because they're going to take away everybody's guns and so that generates fear, or down in a Republican administration because there's not going to be any fear. The only way to overcome those sorts of big trends is for, and, and in the downturn during Republican administrations for George Bush administration, it was 9-11 and hatred of the other, hatred of Muslim terrorists invading our, you know, towns and cities. In Donald Trump, during Donald Trump administration, it was hatred of our neighbor, hatred of minorities, hatred of people marching down the streets and, you know, burglaring your garage or murdering your kids or whatever it is, and COVID, and just, just an unbelievable amount of angst. So, yeah, that's... That, and that was very frustrating to me because I wanted to work in an industry and for a company that built fine guns that I could be proud of, that my dad and my grandfather would be proud of. And here we have these larger societal influence coming in, influences coming in. And they had nothing to do with hard work and good firearms design and things I could be proud of. They were, they were parts of this much larger, these big tidal waves that were, that were hitting me. But this... Slippery slope theory, like if we, if we let them regulate this, then eventually they're going to come for our guns. The reason we all know what a slippery slope argument is, is because sometimes the slope is slippery. Is there absolutely nothing? Because the idea that, well, if they um, uh, outlaw this kind of rifle, uh, I could see the public going, Oh, because we're not paying, we're just living our lives. A lot of people aren't paying that much attention. Oh, you mean you, that kind of gun doesn't have to be legal even with the Second Amendment? Okay, well, what other regulation can we do? That's sort of the argument. Is that completely wrong? That, is, is there a kind of logic to, no, this, we're going to be Second Amendment pure and simple or else eventually they're going to, I don't know, they're going to have some gun registry or they're going to start outlawing more and more things? So I think that's a, a very good question. And, um, and I appreciate you throwing me a softball. Um, I, there's nothing in our lives where we are absolutists, right? You don't say, oh, wow, they're trying to regulate our speed on the interstate now out here at I-90 just south of us. Um, pretty soon we won't be able to drive a car. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. You, you, you don't say... Um, and, and nor should we say, oh, I can't, my four-year-old can't have a howitzer on the camp, on the, on the, you know, playground, so I won't be able to have a handgun to protect myself. That is silliness. There is such a thing as slippery slope, slippery slope but we are so far removed from that. We have, we are now arguing about whether we are going to be responsible parts of a country or we're going to be irresponsible parts of a country that take it apart. Gun owners are either going to understand that just like all other rights, speech, religion, like 
if you started a religion tomorrow that said, I want to have child sacrifice, I'm pretty sure there's a constitutional regulation that would say, look, you do have, you do have right to have, you have your own religion, but you can't sacrifice kids. Sorry. It's not going to happen. In other words, every right is balanced with responsibilities. And gun owners are very close to such a dangerous imbalance about what responsibilities and rights are that we risk being the thing that takes the democracy apart instead of a very important thing that keeps it, that holds it together. Well, since I'm presenting NRA arguments to you, what about the, what about, I'm trying to figure out if, what about the parts of their arguments that aren't just fear-mongering and, and, you know, dog-whistling, but that makes sense to a lot of people. For example, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to enable, is with a, a good guy with a gun. So in other words, guns are out there, and they're going to get traded, and they're, and they're going to get misused. So what we need is there are more good guys than bad guys. And so uh, we need to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. what, so... I should stipulate right up front, I believe that Americans have the right to defend themselves. I believe that all of us in this room have the right to defend ourselves. I ask as a country, do we want to be a society that continually ratchets up fear and conspiracy and hatred and racism until every single person has a gun so that every single person can be scared of the next person? so that every incidence that we have is a match near a gas can so that we are no longer get so we just have to guess who is the good guy who is the bad guy who's going to shoot who there is truth in that um if if you are trying to defend your child or somebody is trying to defend you you would like them to be a good guy and you'd like them to have a gun if somebody is coming after you. True enough. And I don't want to take and I don't want to take that away from people. But the NRA and so many firearms Second Amendment absolutists seem to believe now that we want to, that we yearn to be a country where we arm every single person, that we make every single person so fearful of each other that we're all on a hair's trigger so that anytime somebody looks sideways at you in a grocery store over a box of Cheerios that you knocked over, you're just going to start mowing them down. I just don't think that's the country that any of us want to live in. Um, that's really what you think the NRA wants? I think that they haven't stopped to think about where, about what they are imposing on America is going. And I fear that's where it's going. I fear, I saw... I talked to, I heard, I listened to. Kyle Rittenhouse is going to trail, trial next week. Kyle Rittenhouse. This is the Kenosha, Wisconsin shooter. This is the Kenosha, Wisconsin shooter who drove from his home in Illinois across state lines into Wisconsin to become, as Dana Loesch, the spokesman for the NRA, said, the only way to stop somebody is with your own clinch fish of truth. Clinch fish. And here, Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old kid, borrows an AR-15, and shoots three people. And he is heralded as a hero by many in the firearms industry. 
That is not the industry that I started in. That's not the country I want to live in. I'm, I, I'm not even going to get into the arcane legal arguments about whether he's going to be convicted or not. Do we really want to live in a place where 17-year-old kids are empowered and we have enough guns that they're, that they're given rifles so that they can go kill people on a street in Kenosha, Wisconsin? I don't want to live in that country. Well, I know he said he was there to defend the uh, business owners, et cetera, but yes, we won't get It was a car that. dealership. Yes. It was midnight. Uh, good question here. Have you received backlash from more states than others? How's the culture shifted when you travel? I wondered for your, for your personal safety, man. So I walked into my house one night and my 16-year-old son was on a laptop and he informed me that there were 150 pages or so of blogs and entries and whatever else about how I should be dismembered and killed. And, um, you know, I will say, they, these people do have very creative ways of explaining how your body parts should be removed from your torso and then spread across the country. I'll give them that. But this is nothing new for me. I fought against the industry even while I was in it because even a little bit of naysaying about the industry, even when I was in it, I would, I would get this. And so this is, just a, this is just a continuation of that. So have I, have I got this? Yes. Will I continue to get it? Probably so. Um, at the same time, the sort of very heartening, very touching outreach from people who believe, I, I, think, I just think there's a lot more people like me and people who own guns and hunters who want to be a part of the country, want to be a responsible part of the country, want gun owners to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. There's just so many more of us out there. And I'm just tired of the loud the loud people with the mics in the room and the keyboard warriors, it's easy for them to say they want to behead me, which, you know, it's out there. There's YouTube channels. and But those, those people are just keyboard warriors. Um, I'm, I'm so much more heartened with the long, long letters I get. I got, a, I got a letter from a gal in Sweetwater, Texas, just a couple nights ago, multi-generational ranch owner of some huge ranch in West Texas about how my book resonates with her and she just can't take it anymore and she's no longer an NRA member and her husband's not going to be either and neither are our sons and she feels like this thing that they love is taking apart the country. I get a lot of those. Yeah. Uh, I haven't managed my time that well, um, I think, because I'd be happy to be here, uh, keep going and keep asking questions. So shut me down when, if you need to, Town Hall and you folks. Uh, another question, can you explain what you mean by radicalization? This is, that's the subtitle. The yeah, so to me, radicalization is when, when something twists you into, into political and actual physical activity that is contrary to your self-interest and to the self-interest of the country and to the interest of the country. And so I see so often gun owners who believed in all of these myriad of you know I'll, I'll just say like for instance you know for a long time gun owners were the conservative church-going moralistic right patriotic people but as soon as 
as, as soon as guns were threatened, they will just give up principle one, two, three, four, five. And for me, it was public lands, environmentalism, belief that we should be for hunters, for wild spaces, for wild animals. And so when you'll sacrifice all of your principles for this one large, powerful entity that, that has come to be, frankly, you know, sort of the symbolic thing as the AR-15, um, you know, you become radicalized around that. And that's, that's what I've seen. I, I mean, for me, when I saw the January 6th insurrection and you saw two types of flags, American and Trump flags, and then come and take an AR-15 flags. I'm like, okay, guns are at the center of this radicalization. Um, that scared me, but I had been scared about that for several years. In case they make this my last question, I, I can't tell. Um, what, what are your, uh, what's your prediction? What can we do and what are the prospects for things getting better versus worse? So I believe... I have believed this many times and I've been wrong that the, that the political right has jumped the shark and that good people are going to stand up and, I've had, and say I've had enough. But I do believe we are um, gun owners and sportsmen, hunters are at that point where good people are going to stand up and say, okay, I'm a gun owner, but I'm not that kind of gun owner. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to be a part of the solution. I'm not going to be a part of the problem. And I think we have to do that. We have to stand together. We have to be willing to cast aside this sort of radicalized crap that we cannot be a part of. And we have to be willing to castigate those, you know, my, as I told you while we're having a drink, my pejorative name is a sort of, you know, crazy Uncle Bob that you're having Thanksgiving dinner with who just says these crazy things and you're sort of like, okay, I'll have one more glass of wine and I won't say anything. No, it's time for us to stand up and say, no, that's not true. That nobody, the UN is not trying to take your shotgun. Like that's silliness. And so I think good people, I, I do feel heartened that so many people have reached out and said, thank you for doing this. I want to join up. I want to do this. It's time we take this back. And um, I, 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 I just feel we're at the crest of a wave um, I'm hopeful. I hope I'm not naive, but I really do believe I'm hopeful, and I think it. I think it relies on good people standing up and finally just taking back the mic. But now, what? How would that happen? Because maybe I'm a pessimist, but Thanksgiving by Thanksgiving conversations, and people, of course, they're going to come to you. Those are those are the people who agree with you are going to come to you and say, "Yeah, me too." But how are how are those optimistic signs going to translate to to the big forces of change that you're hoping for? So I think that we, I think people are empowered. I think that silence, the silence of so many of us who believe that just logic and rationality is okay and, and that will get us through and that's enough to win the day. No, it's not. We have to be passionate enough to stand up for our argument. And, and I, I believe that this, this sort of frightening proto-fascist thing that we've seen bubbling up on the American right really has a lot to do with us being with progressives, moderates, people who care about democracy, classical liberals, being so tied into just being right and rational that we're not, we don't stand up and fight for it. I think that if we stand up and fight for it, we'd be amazed at how 
we can put this sort of ugliness back in the shadows. I don't think that ugliness will will ever not be a part of any democracy or any government, but it has it has taken far too large a role. And it's because we have allowed it to take that large role. We have been silent. And when we're complicit, when we're silent, we're complicit. And it builds and then and then it builds upon itself. So I, I think we've got a lot a lot more power than we believe we do. Ryan, there's so much in the book. Is there something that, that I haven't asked you, but you really want to touch on? Tell us about it. The only thing I would say is that this, this is my story. This is the story of my family. But it's really, it's, it's, it's a narrow lens on me and, and my family, but it's also a wide lens on our country. And if you want to understand and undo the sort of national radicalization and ugliness that we all live with today, I think this is the story that you need to read because we're not going to undo it until we understand how we got here. And this is the story of how we got here. I lived through the middle of all of it. And if you read this book, I think you'll have a lot better understanding and appreciation for how we got here and how we can undo it all. So I, I really appreciate you, you having me here tonight, Bill. I was really drawn to the, the idea of the couch commando, and there are other names for it. Yeah. but. I really think, and it could be right or left, I suppose. I always, I'm a fan of somebody understanding how they're being manipulated, especially when they have their kind of, their pride seems to be, their pride and identity seems to be so caught up. It's kind of, it's kind of a humiliating read if I'm one of those people who, um, you know, I, I, who just is all caught up in the, who's the guy with the, with the coffee? Matt Best. I'll let you say it. Um, yep. That, that, was a, that was a very riveting part of the book to me that these people, it, you talk about people who seem to take so much pride in that they're doing the right thing and they are, and they're also, the, they're living the masculine dream and everything, and yet you portray them as being kind of pathetic the way it came off to me. I think that so many of us have, um, in the last three to five years, woke up, looked at the news, gone to a protest. I had my son attacked by one of these people and thought, what in the holy hell? How did we get here? It's this weird mix of machismo, you know, strange machismo patriotism wrapped in a flag, sort of near a Bible. Mm. Like it's, it's this all, and, and I'm sure that so many folks have thought, good God, like how did, it just sort of emerged on the political scene, right? On, on the American political scene, just like one day, you know, it's like Bill shooting cans with his BB gun, and then the next day, armed guys with American flag bandanas and AR-15s and tactical vests and three-point harnesses and 30-round magazines are down at the local protest threatening kids in Portland. Like, how, did, how the hell did that happen? Yeah. Well, this Couch Commando chapter explains that, and it's a byproduct of 20 years of American wars in the Middle East, in a place that um, the firearms industry pejoratively called the sandbox. Um, and then you have all of these special forces folks, most of them guys, who came back and have been largely revered and portrayed in very heroic ways in numerous TV series and Netflix accounts and movies and everything else. And then you have the weapons that they carried, which were for the most part, weapons of war, AR-15s, offensive weapons of war. 
And when you mix this all together in a soup and then you have a few, and then you overlay American quarterly capitalism over that and you think, how can I make a buck on this? Then all of a sudden you have this weird, weird, <laughs> frightening American machismo that we see that you can only be patriotic if you have a flag, an AR-15, 30-round magazines, and our Kyle Rittenhouse traveling across, across the Illinois border, borrowing an AR-15 and killing protesters, right? That's the way you prove your manhood. And so that Couch Commando chapter, I think, explains how we went from BB guns and, you know, my brother and I, you know, reenacting the A-team to what we see today as a very powerful and potent political force. Yeah, so you could tell them this kind of stuff because you are who you are and you're dressed who you are and you know what you know about guns. Yeah. Like you're coming, from a, you're coming from a place where you can scoff, yeah. whereas, uh, uh, you know, a Seattleite like me doesn't quite have that. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't read the same. Perhaps, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to scoff so much. I do, but I, do, but I, I think what our industry did and capitalized on and tapped into almost like a resource is so incredibly dangerous for our country. Um, and, and, and it is this sort of, again, I, I hate to say it, but it's this sort of proto-fascist source of power that we see now is, is really fueling the American right. And it's, it's, it's just frightening. Well, your journey through that is, is amazing. I got to give a lot of credit yeah. to your wife, by yeah. the way. She's, she's a major character. In she's your... a hero. I married, you know, a couple steps above my head. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she was a, a definitely, I'd say, I, I always wanted to do well. I came to a point where I wanted to do good and do well. Sarah always wanted to do good. Mm. Ryan Bussey, thanks for telling your story, and thanks for coming here tonight to Seattle. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your good questions. Ryan Bussey spoke with KUOW's Bill Radke about his book, Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Town Hall Seattle presented their conversation on November 1st as part of their civics series. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.